This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain exactly what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. Unpaid labor, time spent doing housework, childcare, and the myriad of other activities related to household maintenance has long been largely left out of conversations about work, employment, and the state of the economy, in large part because it's often invisible. Of course, the pandemic changed that. Suddenly, all the unpaid and visible labor taking place in people's homes was front and center. Unfortunately, that did not spell change for most families. Pre-pandemic, women did on average four hours of unpaid labor at home, while men did about half that, two and a half hours a day. The time spent on cooking, cleaning, childcare, etc. did increase for both men and women during the pandemic when our homes became our offices and our schools, but the balance of labor didn't shift. Women are still doing, on average, nearly twice as much unpaid labor as men. This burden is, as we've talked about on the show before, causing many women, roughly 3.5 million in 2020, to either cut back their hours or leave their paying jobs, setting women's workplace progress back by an entire generation. But what if we thought differently about this kind of work? After all, nurturing the next generation of human beings certainly isn't an insignificant job. Why should it be unpaid? If American women earned minimum wage, which, by the way, is still less than $10 an hour at the federal level, for all of the unpaid work that they do at home, they would have made well over $1.5 trillion, or in other words, about the market cap of Amazon. What would the world look like if we started paying for unpaid labor? Joining me to discuss what that could look like is Melissa Botaic. Melissa is Vice President for Income Security, Child Care, and Early Learning at the National Women's Law Center. Melissa also oversees their advocacy, policy, and public education strategies on these issues. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's first talk about the division of labor when it comes to unpaid labor. Studies show time and again that women do about double the amount of unpaid labor as men, and it's just gotten worse during the last two years of remote work and school closures. Why is this so persistent? There's a lot of reasons why. Um, One of the reasons is that, uh, you know, women have, generally speaking, there's been a persistent gender pay gap. And so when there's a parent who needs to, you know, step out of the workforce or miss hours or whatever it is, oftentimes the in a heterosexual couple, the woman is making less than the man. Um, and so it becomes this vicious cycle of uh, you get paid less. So therefore you are the one taking on more caregiving responsibilities. Therefore you make less. Uh, and so we have to really be interrupting that cycle um, with investments in care, infrastructure, child care, home care, um, you know, paid family and medical leave, et cetera, so that there's actually a, a more equal division of unpaid care work. And so you you hinted at this a little bit. What's been the, the impact of how disproportionate it is? The fact that, you know, women, when push comes to shove and it's like a crisis situation, it's women that end up taking on, on more of the unpaid labor, then what happens is they leave the workforce, right? What have we seen during the pandemic? So in March of 2020, Oxfam published a piece showing that 
Um, if you pay women minimum wage for all the unpaid labor that they do, uh, it would be amount to $10.9 trillion. Uh, and so this is clearly like a huge, <laughs> a huge share of the economy. In that same month, this was when we were all innocent uh, before, you know, really the pandemic hit. Uh, women's labor force participation hit a um, a new high. We were over half of uh, payroll workers. And so that was a we were celebrating. Wow, look at this big accomplishment. And then two weeks later, uh, we started to see that it was really built on a foundation of sand because when the pandemic hit, and all of a sudden, you know, schools were uh, closed or going virtual. Childcare was closed, or um, you know, people were cutting back hours, obliging with stay-at-home orders. Guess who was watching the kids? It was women. And we've seen throughout the pandemic, uh, National Women's Law Center follows monthly jobs reports that the Bureau of Labor Statistics put out at these key moments when someone has to decide who's going to be staying home to oversee distance learning that's when you see the biggest exodus of women from the labor force. And so, for example, in September of 2020, when children returned to virtual learning, four times as many women as men left the labor force that month. And fast forward to today. Uh, so again, we're talking two years ago, we were at a, a historic high for women in the labor force. Today, men have made up all of their gains, whereas uh, over a million women are still missing from the labor force two years into the pandemic. You know, so part of it you mentioned, and we we've certainly talked about it on the show before, the gender pay gap and and women by and large making less than men. But we're seeing these unequal divisions of labor, even in heterosexual couples where women earn as much as men or women earn more than men. Do you have any insight into like why these negotiations are still that way? Like why is it still women that end up bearing the brunt of unpaid labor? I mean, some of it is that we need to shift our culture. Um, and we, you know, we need to make sure that, I mean, some of it can be done with public policy. Some of it can be done with business, um, better best practices, but it's also just about, uh, the value that we place on care work. And it's something that is going to take a cultural shift for us to be able to make some inroads there as well. I think this is a, a story that's not mine that I've talked about on the podcast before of, of just kind of the expectations, you know, really, you know, when you talk about like shifting the cultural expectations, it's the expectations of who gets called from the school, who gets called when the kid is sick on a cultural level, but also on a personal level, like pushing against those expectations that it shouldn't have to always be the mom. There's kind of two pieces to this, right? There's the public policy level and the, and the private solution. Are there any moves on a public policy level to paid for unpaid labor? I'm thinking the most obvious one, which unfortunately has now expired, is the child care tax credit. Mm -hmm. The biggest effort that's being discussed right now is these large investments in care infrastructure uh, that were part of what was Build Back Better late last year and is still sort of under negotiation, but we're in a little bit of a holding pattern. So the proposals that passed the House included a transformative investment in childcare, universal pre-K, paid family medical leave, home and community-based services. If we had enacted the House passed version of the Build Back Better Act, we would see a massive shift in uh, the investment and the expectations around care infrastructure in this country. And all the research suggests that it would have immense implications, positive ramifications uh, for women's labor force participation, for gender and racial equity. The National Women's Law Center did a study with Columbia University's uh, Center on the Study of Poverty. We found that if you invested in affordable, high-quality childcare for everyone who needed it, you would increase women's labor force participation 
by 17%, and for women without a college degree by 31%. And then what that means is, you know, childcare isn't just a, a problem that is for people who have young children. What happens is that when people have to cut back their hours or forego career opportunities or leave the labor force altogether, those decisions then ripple throughout their lives all the way into their retirement. And so we found that when you actually make these investments, women are making close to $100,000 more over their lifetime by their ability to stay attached to the labor force, and then another $30,000 in their retirement and greater social security contributions and things like that. And so if we have a retirement crisis 30 years from now, we'll be able to look back at the pandemic as a really important factor that uh, you know women are poor in retirement because they got pushed out of the labor force uh, at a key time when they were needing to have earnings for Social Security. That's a really interesting point. That's something that I don't. I think you're right. Doesn't get kind of talked about as much. Is that it's not just a crisis for when you have small children and that's it and solve that problem and there's nothing else for the rest of your life. It ripples through the rest of your career, especially in those career building years, and has an effect even, as you say, on retirement and lifetime earnings. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the concept of the child care tax credit in particular, because that's something that we've talked about a little bit on the show before. That's really a move kind of in, you know, these investments in like universal pre-K and, and things like that are really put the kid in a childcare situation and enabling the individual to go to work. But something like a childcare tax credit is a little bit of a move to pay. I mean, it's, it's money that you can use at your discretion, right? So you can use it to put your kid in a daycare or you can use it to stay home with your kid. And that's more of a move towards paying for individuals unpaid labor, right? So the child tax credit. That is a transformative investment, and it's a policy that uh, we've championed for a long time as a complement to child care and to paid leave and to home and community-based services. Together, those form a care infrastructure uh, that we need. And so what we're finding is that with the child tax credit, if you look at how families are using it, they're using it to help pay rent. They're using it to meet their grocery bills. They're using it to just, again, take some of that weight off their mind uh, in terms of, am I going to make this month's bills? Some folks have used it for child care, but uh, frankly, child care is so much more expensive um, than what a monthly child tax credit is going to provide that it's not going to, that is not sort of the route to solve the problem. The other piece um, that makes sort of child tax credit, which cut child poverty by nearly in half in the year that it was in place, those expansions. Uh, so again, a huge win and something that really should be sustained permanently. But a big distinction is that when you have child care, you also have a workforce on the other side. And right now that workforce is paid poverty wages. And again, consistent with our historic undervaluing of care work, whether it's paid or unpaid. This is a field, childcare, that over 90% of the workers are women, and they are disproportionately women of color. And these women are more likely to be relying on public assistance. They're more likely uh, to be living in poverty than most other workers. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is people leaving the field because, you know, you can make more money uh, as a barista at Starbucks than you can in caring for young children and shaping the next generation. And that means then all the mothers and parents who rely on childcare can't find it. And so we're not going to solve our childcare crisis um, only with, uh, you know, money to parents. We should be giving money to parents because it costs money to raise children and because we want to make sure that if people uh, are able to and want to stay home, that their labor is compensated too. But that's not going to solve our care crisis alone. It has to be done in concert with public investments in a childcare system that we build. 
Yes. And that's really important. And that's the underpay of, of care work is something that I, I want to kind of get back to. But I think that's a really important point that you make that it's care infrastructure, as you say, and it's not just one thing. It's investment in childcare itself, but it's also investment in families and their amount of their unpaid labor that they're doing at home that needs to be subsidized in order to literally survive. And, you know, another thing that I'm curious about, and I'm wondering if you have any insight into when we talk about paying for unpaid labor is uh, universal basic income, which we've seen some cities start to do experiments in. It's, it hasn't really been talked about that much on a national level. I'm interested to see if you have any insights into how UBI fits into paying for unpaid labor and if there's a way to make sure it kind of impacts the people who need it most. I think a lot of the like reactions when you hear UBI is, you know, you're just going to give everybody money and to do what and do they need it and, and that sort of thing. We have an issue with income volatility in this country where even when people, I mean, you saw with the pandemic, even when people have a job and they feel like they're pretty stable, the rug can be pulled out pretty quickly from underneath you. Um, and then we go to these crisis moments where, okay, we have to very quickly uh, build this infrastructure to get money out to people, et cetera. Whereas something that we've advocated for is make sure that we actually have, we're funding the IRS uh, administration so that we can get tax credits out to people on a monthly basis. Make sure that states aren't relying on 1970s technology to cut unemployment checks uh, and are actually, you know, two thirds of people are going to be unemployed at some point in their lifetime. It would be good if we had an infrastructure to actually make sure that they don't fall deeper into poverty or lose their homes by getting them payments. And so I think there's a debate to be had about whether or not UBI is the way to do that or not. But at a very basic minimum, this country needs to build up the infrastructure as well as shift the narrative on who is deserving and who is not deserving of having the very basic things that we all need to survive. And I think that we get so caught up on, well, is somebody getting it who shouldn't be getting it? Mm -hmm. That's a narrative that hurts all of us because guess what? At some point, the likelihood is most of us are going to need it. Whether that is because we have caregiving responsibilities, we lose our job, uh, you know, we are sick ourselves. At some point, the same way that we have Social Security uh, retirement benefits because we're all recognized we're going to age, during our working years, at some point, all of us are going to have disruptions in income. Um, and so whether that's through a UBI, whether that's through more robust paid leave and unemployment insurance policies, this country has to get more comfortable with the idea of giving people money is not a bad thing. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. That's such a great point that I think that people don't think about is when you look at the flip side, when you look at later in life, you don't hear as many arguments over, well, does everybody need social security? But you hear these arguments over, does everybody need child tax credit or UBI or unemployment or like... You're okay with giving people money in their old age, but you're not okay with giving people money when they're in the thick of their working lives with care responsibilities and other responsibilities. The other part of a lot of these government programs um, that kind of doesn't get talked about as much is, is the red tape in getting the money, especially for people of lower incomes who maybe don't file taxes. Do you have any insight into like <laughs> what can be done there? I mean, there's a lot of policy shifts that can be made uh, in order to make it less of a stigmatizing experience. Because again, like, I mean, there was research by uh, Mark Rank at Washington University in St. Louis showing that four out of five people at some point during their life are going to be unemployed, 
living at or near poverty um, are otherwise turning to the social safety net. That's over 80% of us. So why we make it into when you're in the thick of it, this stigmatizing experience where people are asking, do you really need this? And how do you prove that you're worthy of it? Uh, which in this country, unfortunately, has a long history of being associated with racist dog whistles and sex stereotypes and things like that. We're only hurting ourselves. Every study shows that when you give parents money, when you give families money, they use it for groceries, they use it for rent, they use it to invest in their children, they use it for higher education, they use it for the building blocks of economic mobility. Um, and so some of the policies that you could do are, for example, streamlining access at the state level. Why do you have to go fill out all these different kinds of paperwork uh, to keep showing again and again that you need help? Um, you can streamline access by having eligibility for one program confer eligibility for another. You got to change the culture at the front office to be one of customer service, to be one of helping people, as opposed to like a gatekeeper of do you really need this or not? Um, there's investments in technology um, and in language access and things like that so that I mean, again, this is not the sexy stuff people want to talk about, but if you, I like, if you don't invest in the basic technology and staffing that you need to administer programs, then people are frustrated because they can't access what they need to access. And that builds a distrust in government. And so again, it becomes the self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, the government can't do anything right, but then we're, so we're not going to fund it. So therefore the government can't do anything right. And in reality, we have example after example, whether it's the child tax credit uh, that just went out this past year, or going all the way back to the Recovery Act after the Great Recession, that when government is able to make public investments and invest in the administration to get it out, it helps people in real time. Um, and it makes a meaningful difference, not only in their hardship, but in their long-term economic prospects. You have so many good points there. And, and I think when you make these investments, it's not just in a short-term fix. I think a lot of people maybe view these cash payments as like a short-term fix, but it's really setting people up to build their economic mobility, their career path, giving space to do things with your career and with your life. I'm wondering, you know, we've talked a lot about the public policy end of it. Have you seen anything on the private side on the um, that private companies are, are doing to help ease childcare burdens, pay for unpaid labor, acknowledge acknowledges in any way? Yeah, I mean, you have some companies who uh, offer paid family medical leave. Um, you have some companies who offer more flexible and predictable schedules. I think part of the problem is you shouldn't have to win the boss lottery in order for uh, those things to be available. If we know that these are what help keep women, um, at, well, people, but especially women, especially mothers and caregivers attached to the labor force are able to achieve economic security, it's wonderful that when companies are able to do that and it actually becomes something that helps retain workers um, and reduce turnover. But then you also get job lock where somebody might be afraid to leave a job even though they're ready to go to the next thing because they can't afford to lose their paid leave. Um, or they can't afford to lose their health insurance. Uh, and so I think that it's really important and wonderful that companies are offering these kinds of benefits um, and are making sure where they can, I mean, there's not, most companies are not, but many are that there's paid medical leave, that there is, um, you know, flexible schedules, all those things. But ultimately, you shouldn't have to win the boss lottery to have a career. It's true. And, you know, and we, we talk a lot about the great resignation and, you know, the labor market and 
you know, all of these employers who are looking for ways to attract and retain employees. And it's like, oh, let's give them signing bonuses. Let's, you know, should we raise wages? And all of those things, sure, people like money, you know, people need money. But time and again, it's like, I feel like there's this flashing red light that it's like, well, make work less burdensome and less a barrier to being able to live your life and having, you know, as you say, you shouldn't have to win the boss lottery. It shouldn't be that, oh my God, I have to stay at this job because they, you know, are the only ones that offer any kind of flexibility. Like this should be a universal norm. We should, I mean, it really takes kind of rethinking universally the way that we think about what a job is and what work looks like and when work is done and how work is done. Right. I mean, we've talked about how, you know, a lot of women get pushed out of the labor force, particularly when their children are young. It's also, even if it doesn't have to be that extreme, people could forego an economic opportunity or they could cut back their hours or and other things that not only affect their income in real time, but also their long-term trajectory and career prospects. And so there's a whole like continuum of ways in which this can affect people, but it disproportionately affects women. It's not race neutral either. Um, you know, Black women, Latinas, et cetera, they face a much steeper gender pay gap. Black women in particular have higher rates of labor force participation. And women, and in particular women of color, are concentrated in low-paid jobs where work conditions and benefits tend to be the worst. And so we see that, all, like we, we talk about it as though it's an individual issue, but structurally speaking, we devalue the sectors uh, like care work uh, where women of color are overrepresented. And then we say, well, why aren't you more economically secure? When we look at the the value of the type of labor that's unpaid, so and we look at, at replacing it by paying somebody else to do it, so cleaning, child care, elder care, you know, the types of work that we do in our lives that is unpaid labor, if you try to replace that with paid labor, those are always the most low-wage work, as you say. As you've mentioned, like, that's tied to the way that we value that work. We value it as, for some reason, as low-skilled work, even though care work is probably one of the most highly skilled work, probably, as you mentioned, like tied to gender stereotypes and beliefs on the types of people that should be doing this work. How do we start to value this type of labor and pay what it's worth? I mean, this goes back to before America was founded. I mean, like... (laughs) Enslaved Black women were required to care for no pay for, you know, the children of white slaveholders. And during the New Deal, we put a lot of labor protections into place, but we intentionally excluded places where Black women in particular, whether it was domestic work or in agriculture, et cetera, those were excluded from labor protections. And going all the way up to the 1970s, um, one of the reasons that Richard Nixon, President Nixon, vetoed our country's last moment where we could have had universal child care is because of sort of cultural expectations that, you know, women, white women should be at home with their kids, but black women always worked. Um, and so I think it's, you know, we can't separate race and gender from the conversation about how we have devalued care work so far. I think that one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been that collectively we woke up to the way that care is the backbone of our economy because for a long time had this very strange divide in our mind that childcare is not education and education is not care. But I think the pandemic blew that open. We saw that when children needed to be home during the pandemic because of school closures and distance learning, that, okay, school is childcare in addition to being education. Like we cannot work without that care present. 
And we saw our young babies and our children who were not in a place where uh, you know, they were get, able to get sort of full-time childcare and full attention, not having the same opportunities for development and education. Childcare is education. And so I think part of what we need to do is really think about what this pandemic taught us about the way that care holds up the economy and its value. And also, if we are thinking about how to value this kind of work, um, making sure that we are paying preschool teachers and paying childcare workers according to their skill set. So not only a living wage, but one of the things the Build Back Better Act would have done um, and will do if enacted is make sure that people with similar credentials to elementary school teachers are paid like them because they are early educators. And so I think it's about re-examining the value that care has in our society now that we've all had this very horrible experiment as to what happens when it's not there. Yeah, I think that that is that is a battle that you see, you know, playing out a lot of that, you know, teachers saying we're not babysitters and that feeling of, but yes, like, you know, as you say, childcare is education. And, and the fact that we draw this line and say that these people who are, I mean, if you've had to do that job yourself, like you realize that is highly skilled work and yeah, making that labor paid what it's worth. I mean, paying unpaid labor at home, but also paying the people that we are paying to replace our unpaid labor, a a living wage, those figures when we talk about $10 trillion globally or $1.5 trillion in the in the US, that's if we paid those unpaid jobs minimum wage. And I think we can all agree, which by the way, isn't minimum wage still like less than is around like $10 an hour. Like these jobs are certainly worth a lot more than that. Yes. And I mean, I think that what you're getting at also is a a mindset shift that I think has actually started to happen with the pandemic, which is this move from care as a private responsibility that is every family's individual cross to bear and burden to shoulder to recognizing care as a public good. And the same way that education is a public good or that roads or bridges are a public good, because again, our economy doesn't function without it. Whether or not you have kids, when childcare shuts down, it's a mess. For the whole community, for the whole economy, um, whether or not you have kids who are in preschool, you are seeing uh, you know more women in the workforce. You're seeing people be able to show up be- uh, better and differently when their children are in a high quality preschool program. And so, in addition to it being education, in addition to it being a work support, it's also a public good uh, that we need to invest in as such. And so, I think this becomes especially important when you think about valuing both paid and unpaid care. Because if we are to, right now, parents can't even afford care. So they are paying you know, well above what is recommended as a share of their income. I think it's 10% nationally um, is the average. And for single parents, it's 35% of their income to be able to work. That's not sustainable. They really can't afford to pay more. Um, and at the same time, we have early educators who are making you know, $12, $13 an hour Um, who are likely to be relying on public assistance, uh, that's also not sustainable. And so the answer is you need a third-party payer um, in order to make sure that there is fair wages for providers and that parents can actually afford the care and education their children need. And that third-party payer is the government. Um, And so that's one of the reasons why, again, we need to shift this conception um, of this being as like, this is my burden. This is why can't I figure this out? What's wrong with me? What's, you know, why why, why isn't this working for me? To a session of what is wrong with us? What is wrong with, (laughs) what are like, how do we actually make sure that the work that I do as a caregiver, the work that 
the childcare provider or the preschool teacher is doing to care and educate my kids is valued because it's really valuable. I think that's a great bottom line to this is that it's, you know, an investment in unpaid labor and in paying for unpaid labor and investing in better wages of the people replacing the unpaid labor is an investment both in the economy right now, in the workforce right now, and in the workforce in the future, both, you know, as you mentioned, in career trajectories and retirement savings in the future, but also that, you know, as we've like said before, you're educating the next generation of workers, the next generation of doctors that are going to take care of you in your old age. Don't you want to set them up the best that you possibly can? Yeah. And I mean, earlier this week, Wells Fargo, not a bastion of liberalism, published a piece saying that the childcare crisis is leaving, you know, 500,000 parents stranded without care right now. Um, and so you are seeing this as an imperative also from a business and an economic perspective. Um, and again, I think care has always been relegated to this conversation about, um, you know, a, a nice to have or a social issue or a women's issue. And again, I think what this pandemic has underscored that it's it, this is fundamental uh, to to our families and to our economy. The other thing I want to say also is that we should be caring about care because, you know, it helps people work and because, um, you know, again, a high quality care sets children up for success long term. But care is also just fundamentally human. And again, disproportionately women of color and immigrant women are nurturing our kids, regardless of whether or not they become a doctor or the next president of the United States. Every parent wants to know that their child is being cared for in a loving and nurturing and high quality environment that takes a lot of skill. The women who do this job, uh, this very hard skilled job, um, you know, they deserve to be able to take care of their own families too. And we can make an economic case. We can make, a, you know, a, a political, all the different kinds of cases, but fundamentally care is, is human. And I think that we can all kind of relate to that, whether or not we have kids ourselves, that we want that to be a high quality and humane experience for people. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. And that's probably the best note to end on. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you liked this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we want to hear from you. There is an unpaid work calculator that we're going to link to in the show notes for this episode. The calculator estimates how much you would have to pay an outside person to do the unpaid labor that you do at home. Let us know your results and what you think of them. Email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us with the hashtag The New Way We Work. The New Way We Work was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Mm-hmm.